welcome to the Red Team podcast with me, Colin Talbot, talking about government, public policies and public services. Hello, I'm joined today by Bob Hudson, who's written a really interesting book on clients, consumers or citizens about the history of privatisation of adult social care in England. Uh, and Bob's lived through that experience. So maybe if you could just explain why you've written the book, Bob. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Pleasure to be here talking with you. Uh, I, I wrote the book for two reasons, really. One is there's a really important story here waiting to be told. And surprisingly, it hasn't been told in a comprehensive way. Adult social care is interesting. I would say it was the first major service domain to be marketized. So it's a very interesting ideological experiment. And it began probably around about 40 years ago to the day. So we do have four decades of experience to look back upon, which I think can give us some interesting insights into not only what's going on currently with adult social care, but also some wider messages for public policy. So it was an important story to be told, a book that tries to cover policy, practice and politics. And secondly, which you you alluded to, I've been around a long time. I, I I was on a social services committee 50 years ago, a very, very young elected member, I have to assure you. So it's partly academic interest, it's partly lived experience. There's a big, big story here, and it's now a far more explosive policy and political issue than it's ever been in the past. To understand that, we need to look back before we can look forward. That's what the book's about. I think that's really important. There's far too often discussions around policy areas and service delivery areas are rooted too much in the present and not taking a long-term perspective about how things have changed. Yes. I, I, I found it very interesting, the narrative in your book about how adult social care became the first major service area to be marketised in the sense of the split between purchasers and providers, which yes. soon after uh, adult social care spread to many areas of public service, particularly in health and education. Yes. So I wonder if you could just explain a bit about how that happened and what went before. Yes, it's uh, in terms of what went before, it's, it's really quite odd when you think today there's so much talk, though not so much uh, practice, about prevention and community support. Social care was the, w- w- was the missing part of the post-war welfare state. Uh, so we, we had health, we had education, we had housing, we had social security. Beveridge didn't really think about social care. And in the post-war setting, in effect, local authorities were bequeathed the old poor law. Uh, their, their duties were restricted to residential care rather than anything much beyond that. Then you had this interesting development in the 60s up to the early 70s, an attempt to make, as Peter Townsend called it in a really famous Fabian Society pamphlet, to make social care the fifth social services, 
This was the last bit of the welfare state jigsaw. That was the Seabone Committee, the Seabone Report and the 1970 Local Authority Social Services Act, which is where I came in, as I mentioned earlier, as, um, as an elected member. That lasted about 10 years. It was a really short period of an attempt to put that last bit of the jigsaw in. Clearly, by then, we're into about 1980. Um, when I think about how this all happened, it's an odd thing. I would say we now have the purchaser-provider split and the marketization of adult social care for three reasons. Policy accident, political disinterest, and ideological intent. And they, they, they seem a, a curious mixture. Let's take policy accident first. You have a long memory, Colin, so you might remember a junior minister in the Department of Health and Social Security called Rhodes Boyson uh, back in the early 1980s. And what Boyson did in a, a little noticed regulation change was to offer private sector residential care owners a blank cheque if they took in people who were then on the supplementary benefits, the, the welfare state safety net. No upper limit on cost, no eligibility requirements, a very odd state of affairs. Uh, the amount of money spent on this rocketed from about £10 million in 1979 to 2,500 million by 1990. And the Thatcher government felt it had to find a way to put a stop to this uncapped expenditure. Its answer was to put local government in charge of the social security budget for social care. And the price of giving them that additional money was to remove much of their power of delivery. They became commissioners rather than providers of care. I said there was political disinterest. It's an odd thing. Yeah, 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 I was heavily involved at the time. There was very little political argument going on about this. Uh, that Labour's 1992 general election manifesto, Neil Kinnock's last bash, didn't even mention any of this, which is odd when you think about it. In 2010, Andy Burnham tried to reform social care, condemned as a death tax. 2017, Theresa May made some proposals for change, condemned as a dementia tax. Hugely complex political decisions. 2019, Labour proposed a national care service, in effect, renationalizing social care. The first speech Boris Johnson made in 2019 on the steps of Downing Street was to say he will fix social care once and for all. So, so something that was politically unimportant back in the 80s and 90s has since become hugely dominant. But underneath it all, I think, Colin, you, you could see all of the things that we now talk about were beginning to take shape. And social care was the vehicle that the state was inherently inefficient compared with the market. The 
The welfare state, even the seabone reforms, were too large, too insensitive to individual needs. The professionals were self-interested groups that were not altruistic. The task of government was to act strategically, not to deliver services, and that the welfare state should become a shrunken state, a shift from generating well-being to becoming a residual safety net. These are things we talk about today. That those were the principles behind adult social care, which is why I say it was the first domain of real significance to change and there are lessons to be learned from it. There was one other element, though, I think you mentioned in the book, which um, people forget about now, which was there was a critique from the left uh, of professional, uh, well, a number of professional so social and uh, uh, welfare services, um, particularly in social work from the sort of radical social work tradition, which critiqued it for being too bureaucratic, too managerial, too top heavy. And it sort of overlapped with the marketization ideas coming in from the new right. It did, yes. It, it found practical expression in the drive towards what we're now calling direct payments. The idea that you, you, you take money from the state on the grounds the state is inherently unable to understand the best way to address your needs, and you give that money to the people. Uh, so it, it was one of those interesting ideas that brought right and left together. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I would say the jury is still out on whether direct payments to service users has had the impact that they had hoped. But you're right, and it's an, it's an interesting phenomenon that the right and the left could come together in a critique of... Uh, a very nascent welfare state uh, solution that had been developed in the 1970s. It's an argument that still rages today with no agreement uh, at all. So, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I, I, I suppose, I mean, the, the, the whole debate about social care was already rising to the top of the agenda before the pandemic. It's yeah. been given a huge push by the pandemic particularly controversy about the role of care homes um, during the, the pandemic. And I suppose the question now is, where do we go from here? What are the broad policy options for the future? Uh, yes, well, I mean, basically, we, we, we have three positions we can look, look at. Uh, these are all explored in the book. Replace the market, reform the market, or... As they say, can we find a third way? Now, re re replacing the market, in effect, was um, the, the, the proposal in Labour's 2019 uh, general election uh, manifesto. Um, and it, it has an attraction. <laughs> the, the problems are that, I mean, partly, as you say, uh, there are those amongst the the user groups who would prefer to make the choices themselves rather than have the state renationalizing services and making the decisions for them. Um, there are also issues that were never really properly addressed in that manifesto. The first is compensation. You, 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 I mean, we're not talking about 
10% of the market in the hands of the private sector. Now, we're talking about well over 90%. So, first of all, there are issues of compensation, which could run to tens of billions of pounds. What are we going to do? Sequester their assets? It's a tricky one and an expensive one. Uh, market penetration is deep. Market fragmentation is intense. It's, uh, you know, it's not like the railways or uh, the energy companies. We're talking about around 20,000 providers of care. It's a complex market of big providers, medium providers, but primarily very small providers. Uh, and to sort of take over that complex sector is a difficult thing to do, particularly when the body that would have to undertake that task is a hugely hollowed out local government sector, devoid of staff resources. So there's the first option. Can you replace the market? It's tricky. Second option would be to reform the market. Now, I, I guess you would say this is the way that you, current administrations would, would view it. Um, people, I think, accept that the market is not working well. And there are ways of making it more attuned to, in, in, in the parlance of the market, customer needs. Um, so there's a lot of talk about better information for consumers, consumer protection, market shaping. Uh, all of these things would be the, govern, the government's preferred model. So... There are two choices, replace the market, reform the market. The third way is complicated, but, but it's the one I, I pursue in most depth in the book. And it's about developing a model of ethical commissioning. Uh, and it's, it's the biggest chapter in the book. It's around ethical employment practice. It's about commissioning for well-being. It's about commissioning local and small providers, you know, the, you know, the Preston model, which is quite well known. It's about commissioning personally. There are many complex ways you can accept the purchase of provider split, work with it, but make it work in a way that is more likely to enhance uh, people's well-being than is currently the case. Um, so so the, the, I would say those are the three options, really. Um, you know, my book is to focus on the third of these as the most feasible and the most likely to be achieved. Thanks. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm fascinated myself with the uh, possibilities of having some competition mixed with uh, more what's been called public interest corporations, uh, yeah. organisations which supply services, which are neither public nor private in the traditional sense of the words. They're not state-owned, but they're not for-profit organisations either. Um, and I know that was problematic with some of the charities which were sucked into becoming 
um, uh, providers as social care was prioritised. I wonder if you could just say something briefly about that, because I think that's quite interesting. Yes. I mean, really what we can look at here in terms of a framework is, is our old friends, markets, hierarchies and networks. <laughs> uh, and we've drifted towards the market model, um, where we look, look at service users as consumers. Uh, we've drifted away because it's seen as patronising from hierarchies and looking at people who need services as clients. And we're into the world of citizenship and networks. Um, and it's, you know, I think this is a difficult leap to make, I think. Um, but when you, I, I was really impressed with uh, Michael Sandel's book a few years back on uh, what money can't buy, the moral limits of markets. And he talks about the drift from a market economy to a market society. Uh, and in effect argues that markets have drifted into spheres of life to which they no longer belong. And I, I guess my book is a way of suggesting that the market society has gone a bit too far and we, we need to revisit ideas around citizenship and commissioning. That's been absolutely fascinating, Bob. Um, I, I would add that I, I think that uh, when we come to reflect properly on what's happened during the pandemic, uh, I think a lot of the things you're talking about there will come out because a lot of local responses were driven by neither markets nor hierarchies. Um, and actually some of the best responses, uh, I think, uh, were much more networked or community-based. Um, and I think that will come out in due course. So thanks very much for a really excellent discussion, Bob. We could have carried on for hours, I think, but and I hope people will get the book. My pleasure. Nice to speak with you, Colin. Thank you. Just a reminder, Bob's book is called Clients, Consumers or Citizens, The Privatisation of Adult Social Care in England by Bob Hudson, published by Bristol University Press Policy Press.